held June 14th through 16th in Camden. Headline concert Saturday night, June 15th, featuring the Kenny Barron Trio, Greg Abate Quartet, and the Peter Dembski Group. Guitarist Bill Barnes performing at the Blue Cafe and the Friday night dance party at the Snow Bowl. Tickets and passes at CamdenOperaHouse.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening Create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor was founded in 1926 and for years presented a view of Native American history and life um, from a much-loved trailside museum in Acadia National Park. But that view was shaped largely by the descendants of European colonizers, not by the Wabanaki people whose lands were colonized. And this morning, we're very happy to have some folks in the studio who can talk about the process of decolonization. I'm glad to have uh, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, who is president and CEO of the Abbey Museum. Welcome to you. Oh, thanks for having me. And Suzanne Greenlaw, who is an Abbey Native Advisory Council member um, um, with the Abbey Museum um, of the Maliseet Tribe. She's also a doctoral candidate at University of Maine and her research on the sustainable harvest of sweetgrass. Yes. And you're a, a basket maker as well. <laughs> I'm a beginner basket maker, yes. Beginner, <laughs> yeah. And uh, Gabriel Fry. Uh, Frey, is it? Frey. Frey. Um, uh, he was an Abbey board member, a Passamaquoddy um, basket maker. Welcome to you. Thank you. It's so good to have you in the studio, and and uh, perhaps each of you could do a little bit more introduction than what I've given um, to say how you um, started um, uh, Cinnamon for You, how you got started in, in museum work and, and came to the Abbey. Oh, sure. Happy to always talk about that. Lifelong museum goer raised by parents who spent vacations taking us to museums, so I felt very fortunate um, to follow that path as a career. Um, this uh, position at the Abbey, I've been in for 10 years come June 1st, and this is my third um, leadership position in museums. So this is this is the career I've always dreamed of, and uh, doing this work at the Abbey Museum is probably some of the most fulfilling work I've ever done. It's um, uh, empowered me to think differently, to work differently, and to engage with folks who push me daily to think differently and recognize um, my limitations and my privilege um, and really work to create museum spaces fo- focused around social justice, which is which is my real passion now. Mm-hmm. Suzanne, tell us a little bit about yourself. and You um, are doing research on the things that you're using to craft baskets. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, so at the University of Maine, I do research to increase access to ba- to brown ash. It's the material for for the majority of our baskets, and I also um, am increasing access. Or my research is to increase access in Acadia National Park to sweetgrass. Mm-hmm. Um, my research weaves both indigenous knowledge and Western science to create outcomes that are applied, so they actually will have a use. Um, 
Native people will feel the impact, and where both knowledges are privileged at the same level instead of one over the other. Hmm. That's what I do, hmm. yeah. And uh, Gabe, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm a traditional Passamaquoddy basket maker and uh, largely work with the materials that Suzanne is uh, assisting us in uh, sort of gaining more access to. Um, I learned in the traditional way from my grandfather, and he learned from his father, and you know, so on and so forth. So for generations, we've been doing the same same mm. artistic practice. Mm. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the Abbey's path towards decolonization. First of all, can one of you d define what decolonization is or or describe it in a little way, Suzanne, or, or uh, uh, try it? Yeah, well, there's... Um to define decolonization can be really challenging because um, because it's many steps and and it's really looking at the sort of colonial legacy within our structures of things. So I work more in the science field and also in the museum field. I would say um, Cinnamon can talk much more about the Abbey's decolonization process. But so in science, we look at um, like how how do we privilege a voice? Why you know native voices have been left out oftentimes of of research and science, even though say we would include indigenous knowledge, we wouldn't include their actual voice. Mm. So, mm. so it's really about how do we see what is, what's truth, what's accurate, how, well, where do we value that? Like we often see indigenous knowledge as anecdotal. It's just a different form, way of knowing, but because it's not through a Western science framing, people would view it as, as um, not as a form of science. Mm. Mm. So it's really looking at those sort of structures and then also our... Um, Looking at the the framework, like in the museum field, I would say looking at the structures, the who has the power, who who controls the voice, um, kind of trying to dismantle some of that. Hmm. Hmm. Cinnamon. And I would just add that museums, in particular, have this dark legacy of being um, the place where the spoils of war went. That's how they were built through the years, through the generations. Um, the temple on the hill, the place where knowledge comes out of. So it has this. Uh, power and authority to determine what's important and always until recently and in only f a few exceptions what's important has been determined by white um, settlers um, and 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 reaffirmed over and over again so there's erasure there's absence um, for all people of color including indigenous people um, but in particular with the abbey it can be really troubling because all museums are built on that model of how we categorize how we label how we write how we share has been determined by a white narrative this we call it the um, the holy museum voice <laughs> this one voice of authority um, but at the abbey we've really worked to dismantle that so um, we use we use a framework actually in how we do that we're collaborative we privilege indigenous voice and perspectives so indigenous voices come through and they tell you what you get to know, quite frankly. Um, and then the third part is the truth telling is really recognizing that oppression that has been built in museum spaces, but also the full history of um, Wabanaki life in, in Maine, what we call Maine now, um, that goes well beyond 12,000 years. Hmm. What did you find when you came to the Abbey 10 years ago? What was what was there and, and how have you worked with um, the board and perhaps bringing uh, folks like Gabe onto the board? What, what's been that process? It's been multiple steps, as Suzanne alluded to, and it's and it's important to remember that it is a process, so I appreciate the use of the word, because it doesn't have an end goal. It's always going to be a way of working once you 
um, step into it. So for us, it began, um, and I jokingly say this, every big change happens with a problematic meeting. And we had had um, the convening of our first Native Advisory Council, um, which is appointed by tribal leadership in each from each community in Maine. Um, and that first convening happens. We're asking questions um, about what we should do, could do, what do we want to do. And um, some of the recommendations that came out of that first meeting met resistance at the board level. And we really had to peel back why? Because everybody wanted this council to exist. Well, if it's going to exist, then we need to make room um, mm. for the truth to come mm-hmm. out, right? Um, and I will say, though, I'm very fortunate, though, even though there was this resistance, I inherited uh, a working relationships with tribal communities and tribal members um, that have been well established with many, many people on an individual level. Um, a lot of museums can't even say that. There are museums today that work with Native histories who don't even work with Native people. Mm. So I had inherited um, some good relationships that I could make better or ruin, quite frankly, if we didn't deepen um, our work. So it was an opportunity that came out of resistance. Um, but I'm so fortunate that our board um, said, okay, change has to happen, but we know nothing. <laughs> so let's learn. And they've really developed as a learning board, um, which is a little bit different for the governance models in nonprofits. And I think that's the key is that you have to continually engage in it. And, and if you don't get to the point where you're looking inward at yourself in the roles that you had, you're not going to get very far. So we're working on that as well as creating systems for internal thinking and work and personal work. Mm. Gabe, what was your first connection with the Abbey and, and, and what did you find when you became a board member? My first connection was as a teenager. Mm, sure. Actually coming in and working in Bar Harbor and um, it was a it was a typical museum that sort of themed around, you know, native history, which was uh, majority prehistoric. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, it was still interesting, but it was typical. Um, and I think over the course of uh, the years, I've always had this sort of periphery relationship with, you know, um, as, as an artist, you know, selling my work there, um, uh, seeing the, how they host sort of local artists, things like that. Um, but the decolonization work has sort of like um, inspired personal engagement for me. Uh, to actually be like, wow, this is something I actually not only want to see and maybe bring friends to, but uh, is a place where I can actually contribute my voice and have it be heard. Mm. So, mm. yeah, like I said, that's... Yeah, and and um, so as as a board member, um, t- tell us a little bit about the journey of being a board member and, and, and kind of taking on this role, this weight of saying we can do things better, we can do things the way we, we ought to be doing them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've never sat on any board mm. before, mm. so um, it's. I mean, just being a board member in general of anything has, sure. has been a sort of an eye-opening experience for me. But then also having it be something that's uh, really close to my heart. So, mm. like the themes with they're talking about and transforming this larger organization into something that's more reflective of the themes that are being presented in the museum um, has been sort of inspiring. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I know uh, I'm, I'm not as engaged as I probably should be just being a working <laughs> artist. <laughs> you're you're um, allowed. You're <laughs> right. allowed. Yeah, it is, uh, it is something that, again, it's, it's, it's less a, um, an activity and more a, a process, sort of like it's not something that I go and do, but mm-hmm. it's sort of like something that, I'm witnessing sort of evolve. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's pretty great. Mm. Suzanne, tell us a little bit about the, the work of the, the Abbey Native Advisory Council um, and your connection to it. Sure. Um, 
uh, I actually don't know the year, but I was asked to be part of the advisory council maybe in 2015 or 16, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it. I, I, I still love it. It's, it's, um, there's about 10 of us, maybe eight of us, and they're all Native people. And we get to um, get together and discuss our opinions collectively. So, so we get asked about, okay, so first of all, mu- typical museums, even the Abbey Museum, before it became more decolonized, you'd walk through it, and it was interesting, but it didn't actually ever feel like us. <laughs> right? So you're walking through a museum about Wabanaki people that wasn't the Wabanaki that I knew. It was a different Wabanaki, and that was, the, the, that was what people were being educated on. Right, so it was this always this disconnect. It never was a full story, and you never heard elders' voice, or you never heard anybody's voice other than uh, maybe anthropologists or archaeologists telling you about clay pottery from whatever, or denying your existence <laughs> as well. Um, so it was so s- s- with the um, forming of the advisory council and this process. I it's been really. A wonderful to get to have a voice in how our narrative is told. Mm, mm. I mean, there's a lot of things I love about the advisory council. Also, that we are a collective group; that it's not just one native person being asked an opinion about the whole community. That is <laughs> trying to represent yeah, the whole community, right? That's, that's a lot of pressure. It's sure. a little bit like it's not fair to that native person. Mm. Um, I think that's what sometimes when that native person gets put in that position, they then go back to the community, and people are not happy with them. Right, so it puts them in a position that doesn't sit well for the rest of the community as well. Mm. Um, so it's a, a collective group. We all express opinions, and they differ, and we get to talk about them. Uh, um, how different things, interpretive materials get formed, how exhibits are formed. Um, over the past couple of years, we started being a part of the the board meetings as well, and that's a whole another process that's been um, interesting. You really get to see the. Um, the framework of a, a power structure of a of a nonprofit, I guess, and um, and and also even more so that sort of colonial legacy, because often nonprofits, those boards are middle sort of middle class, maybe retired people, and and um, it's same thing with other boards like land mm-hmm. trust boards or whatever, mm-hmm. and and dismantling that aspect of it, divesting some power there is, a, is has been really interesting, a little bit more challenging because it's an emotional space, mm-hmm. right? It's emotional mm-hmm. work for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is a great process. The the Native Advisory Council is being part of that. has been really wonderful to get to include my voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really, I guess, to reiterate what Gabe said, mm-hmm. to feel like my voice has a, has, has, um, is, valued. <laughs> and, and so you said that if, if you're um, asked to be a representative of a, a, a culture or a people, that's uncomfortable. How, how are you received um, in, your, in your community with this notion of a collective? Um, how does that influence how you do your work? Um, so the Abbey is also working hard at now having a presence in the communities. They didn't really have a presence in the communities, especially some from Holton. I'm from northern Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say some people don't really have a relationship with the Abbey there. Uh, but last year, we went there and had a, a meeting up there for the mm-hmm. Native uh, Advisory Council meeting. Um, and so that was nice to have a face there. Um, I would say my community members don't always know what I do. But, you know, like, um, yeah, I would say 
we, but the chief is, is on the advisory council now as well, and so it's, it's starting to become more known. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I would just say in general, like so, like even in Penobscot territory or Passamaquoddy, if one one Wabanaki person was used as a spokesperson for everybody, and it, that whole community Wabanaki community, you know, it puts a lot of pressure. Which I would say that it tends to be, um, I guess, what the larger culture. Uh, has a habit of doing is sort of like singling out one person who can articulate a thought. And oftentimes, while that person may be like from the specific culture, they don't speak for the entire culture, but it's easy to get a soundbite and say, well, this is what all Native Americans think. And so it is. It's unfair to that person, but it's also unfair to the larger community. Mm. So I think the, the power of having the collective is you get to have that dialogue of like, well, this is my opinion, but it's also based from my culture. But you say it in in a circle of your peers from your culture, and you can get um, a larger reflection of the community's voice mm. in that mm-hmm. because there are you know people who who work for the tribal governance, but there are also tribal members who are artists or foresters or you know like there's a larger collective of um, what the community is expecting. Mm. So you're you're facilitating the dialogue that leads to the input that you would yeah. like to give. Yeah. Cinnamon, tell us a little about um, kind of stepping into. The, I, you know, I don't think it's in, um, a secret. You're kind of a leader in this whole decolonization mm. museum decolonization <laughs> effort. What's been the reaction as you've t- taken this idea and this process out into the world? Well, I will say that. Being transparent is at the core of this work. So early on, as we were learning together, while we were thinking together about what it meant to be a decolonizing institution, we were also strategically plotting our structural change, if you will, through those good old strategic plans. And incredible advice came to me um, through Darren Renko, who's someone that was very involved on the board. He's a Penobscot anthropologist, was on the board at the time. Um, and still works with us quite a bit on this um, initiative. He said, this is this is important work, but you need to do the work in a way that others benefit, specifically other tribal communities beyond Maine. Um, there's an opportunity to do something greater. Um, and then to be transparent is powerful. So you're not hiding this change. If you peel back the layers as you're learning, other people will feel emboldened to try as well. And I've always been <laughs> a ridiculous person about transparency. I'll go up there and tell anybody something I'm trying um, and, and just wait for the criticism. And so it kind of worked in this model because I, I feel like I'm an active learner and we kind of translated that to what works. So from the very beginning when we were talking about decolonization, we were putting together session proposals at conferences just to start conversations. And what's exciting is that the conversation has changed in the seven years that we've been at this. In the beginning, um, museum folks would be saying, hey, this is interesting. I have no idea how to get started. Um, But have you thought about this? Or there were really great debates and conversations about decolonization because academia had been talking about this for a long time, but the practitioner had been ignoring it, which is what I am. Um, And all of my colleagues had been ignoring it. So those first conversations were about coming to terms. At the same time, though, I can't take any credit for this, the museum field in general has finally realized how exclusive it is and 
has been working to dismantle racism in all forms. Not all museums are created alike, but um, there are resources now really focusing on diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion strategies. Um, so that was happening at the same time. So fast forward to last year when we're in those same years holding sessions and the conversation is completely different. And there are practitioners sharing ideas and how it's worked and hasn't worked and um, pushing on each other in really productive ways. And lo and behold, more and more indigenous voices in the conversation because they're seeing the change and coming to the table because it's not a harmful space mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. um, now that varies across all rooms and places, but I've definitely seen the changes from where I've been sitting. We in our transparency have also said though, whatever we create, we document it and share it. So from the very beginning, when somebody calls and says, I hear you working on this, I've been keeping this running document. Well, here's what we're up to. Mm -hmm. um, and as more evidence builds for our work, we've been sharing it and that's now evolved into um, us landing a really significant federal grant to build um, a decolonization institute, which Suzanne's been part of so far, um, to really build methodology. Because we know for sure, the only thing we know at the Abbey is we can help you get started, but we cannot tell you where it's gonna go. We cannot tell you what you need to think about because every museum history differ is different. Every individual who's worked there is different. Every tribal community is different and every history with that museum is different. Um, so you have to have this grounding place of getting started and then be willing to keep walking and doing the work. So we think we can build a methodology about getting started and then create this community of practice mm. that will keep talking to each other. Um, so that's what's been, I think, exciting about this is that early on we were transparent and it has only made us um, think more deeply, work harder, and be more effective. Mm. We'll come back to the, the notion of leadership as transparency. I think that's a wonderful concept. Um, but to just remind listeners, they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about um, the road to decolonization um, through the lens of the Abbey Museum located in Bar Harbor. Our guests include uh, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, who is president and CEO. Uh, Gabriel Frey is the um, is a board member. She's also a Passamaquoddy basket maker, and Suzanne Greenlaw, an Abbey Native Advisory Council member, member of the Maliseet tribe, and and a, a, a budding basket maker. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a while, we'll open up our phone lines and, and expand the conversation. But this notion of of leadership as as um, transparency rather than expertise. Um, does that resonate with, with Gabe or Suzanne in terms of how um, we ought to be leading in, in, our, in our world? Absolutely. I think with that, it sort of opens up um, the notion of uh, fallibility and learning from your mistakes. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't, I think history bears it out in all kinds of uh, you know, ways. But if you can say, oh, this didn't work, and, and look, these are the results, I think um, it opens up a lot more opportunities than if you go, no, no, I already know, and let me just show you. <laughs> you know? We'll just keep going down this direction that doesn't actually work. Sure, I think, sure. And that tends to be uh, um, the method for a lot of institutions. Is there a translation between basket making and 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 this kind of work? How did how did you learn? You said you learned from your elders. Yeah. Um, did you make a lot of mistakes? And yeah. Oh yeah. The the <laughs> the process of learning. I mean, I say I, I learned from my grandfather. But really, it was just spending time mm -hmm. and making the mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like um, I I ruined a lot of logs mm. before I got usable material. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's the nature of, of learning. And, and I think 
Um, you know, there's an old teaching in the um, Wabanaki culture of, uh, you know, the sort of legendary figure of Gluskup. Mm-hmm. He's figures prominently in a lot of our sort of legends. And mm-hmm. part of his stories, all of his stories, are this tribulation that he goes through before he f- comes across the lesson. And that is really the heart of it is the difficulty within it. I'm not saying like difficulty is the only way to learn, sure. but it's the way to ingrain lessons deep within you mm. because it, it's through the experience. Right. Suzanne, as a, as a learning or a new basket maker, how do you apply some of this idea of how you learn to be a basket maker? Um, <clears throat> I, well, so I would say I'm still learning because, yeah. um, you know, we have two kids at home. I'm also a you know, PhD student, and Gabe is a basket maker that makes much more money than I do. Right. So our values of <laughs> time, of, of how we allocate time, mine gets the basket tar- t- my time gets put in a small little box. <laughs> um, uh, and I would say some of it, that sort of learning through the process, like it's that you do it yourself, right? You you learn it through that way. Gabe's not going to do it for me to teach me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also requires some sort of inter- <laughs> um, introspection as well, I think. Like uh, why, so I, I will get frustrated and I want him to do things for me and he won't. Um, so that lends itself to interesting relationships. <laughs> um, um, no, it's okay. Uh, and so I have to like figure out what am I really angry at? What am I frustrated in this moment? How can I move past my frustration to just try to figure it out? And I think that leading by example, um, leading through transparency also requires, if you're going to talk about it loud, you also have to look inside and, and figure out where are your roadblocks, mm. right? Which, especially with decolonization, requires a lot of personal work, mm. right? Because, like, those colonial legacies that built a lot of your decision-making or informed your decision-making, informed how you, like, your career oftentimes, right? Like, the people on boards or things like that, they have their ego attached to their position. Mm. So you kind of have to, like, break, peel away mm. a lot of those things that, that made that your, your identity, Mm-hmm. And look at in that where were there maybe inequalities? Why you know who was privileged in the situation and who wasn't? Um, and it's very sensitive um, spaces that requires a lot of work and introspection. Um, so I think basket making is a good, I guess, um, metaphor mm. <laughs> for decolonizing. So the, the, the introspection seems to be so valuable for any of us. What's it been like to, to kind of lead the Abbey in that way, the introspection that you go through, but also that you encourage your staff members to go through, some of whom are, are uh, native, some of who are not, um, and your board? What, what's that process like? <laughs> um, let's see. It changes constantly is the best answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something you can expect. You know, there's some days where um, we can have as a staff, let's say, a difficult conversation about a topic that we're seeing multiple views on. Um, And some days we might feel emotionally charged and some days we don't. Um, But one of the things that it was very clear to me early on is that we have to, in our learning, create systems of training for the staff and be really clear about why we're doing this training, what's needed. One of the first things we did was um, ongoing trainings around racial bias 
And then we also did trainings around facilitated dialogue about learning to have a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. We didn't even know how to talk to each other. And a lot of us don't when it comes to race. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't necessarily like the first thing we needed to talk about when we were doing that facilitated conversation, but it certainly led us to realize, oh, yeah, that is about race, right? Mm -hmm. You really start to learn as you deepen um, your opportunities. And so most recently, we received another great grant to help us bring in trainers in a more concentrated fashion to help us understand that decolonization is critical and that it is something we dedicate to. But if we ignore the fact that it's an anti-racist strategy and what that means, then we're not going to do much. Mm. That they really have to work in lockstep to dismantle racism in museum spaces while we're adopting decolonizing practices critical. So we focused on that training and um, have done a lot of work around cultural competency, um, looking at unconscious bias as well. Um, We've done some work around servant leadership. What does it mean to work um, in collaboration, in service, so that you don't end up being patronizing or inappropriate? Like, what does it really mean to work in service? And then finally, we, we did as a staff a really deep dive into anti-racism strategies and methodologies. And that was all about the internal work. Mm. Um, And having to be vulnerable in front of my staff was one of the most difficult things I think I've ever done. Um, But if I hadn't, I would have created more harm. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And um, it was an easy choice, fortunately, because (laughs) we didn't start there. (laughs) If you start there, I think you're going to repel a lot of people. um, Because you just don't have the pathways and understandings for working through it. Um, so it's a very serious process for us. And I, I would um, say that any museum looking to dismantle these colonial legacies have to do the really hard work. Um, and it needs to be internal before you think you can affect external opportunities. Mm-hmm. I just remind our listeners, they're tuned to WERU and talking about the road to decolonization with our guests from the Abbey Museum. Simon, what's, what, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the process. Um, there's a there's a result from that process that happens on a regular basis because you mount um, exhibitions and and you do educational programs. What's changed in in what we are seeing now at the Abbey um, because of this decolonization effort? Mm. How would you describe um, how the decolonization has influenced um, the, your product? Right. Yes. Is it does affect product. Um, the most visible aspects are always exhibits. Our new, newer core exhibit, People of the First Light, we view as a decolonizing process, made that come to fruition, working with 30 Wabanaki advisors, artists, to create a core content structure for the Abbey. That was fueled by an interpretive framework that the Native Advisory Council worked on with us. Five-year project. That's the other thing. People think it's just a quick <laughs> fix. Right. It's five years for that one exhibit. And then from that, we do exhibits that pull off that theme but are in in alignment. So it really transformed the content we're communicating. That was one of the big visible things. Certainly our educational programming is um, tremendously influenced by decolonized thinking. Um, We are across the state in classrooms helping teachers, young learners in classrooms, as well as public programming. But our programming has this um, careful consideration of the audience and um, non-negotiable qualities of, of the conversation. So really being prepared for the individual who just hasn't learned um, what it means for Indigenous people to present Indigenous lifeways and lived experience and may want to 
inform them back as a non-native person and really having the staff prepared to intervene hmm. and to turn that into a learning moment. That's where the facilitated dialogue training came in for us. So you see that in our programming. Um, we also, though, are very clear when you walk in, there's there's a panel that at the orientation gallery that talks about our decolonization um, commitment and our staff on the front line are all being trained in this work. Every chance we get, we're creating enrichment opportunities. And we're going to keep pushing that further. Mm. And we have learned, which is exciting, is that our visitors want it. They get it. They want more. Um, and they're leaving and doing something about their learning. We've just finished mm. a big um, study, which I haven't even shared with the board yet. We just got the results this last week, that they're taking action when they leave but, and thinking differently. Um, so it matters when we mm. make that museum space um, without harm. Mm. Gabe or Suzanne, when you bring someone from your community to the Abbey, what do you want them to see? What do they see? What do they take away, do you suppose? I think the difference of seeing themselves. I mean, like, you know, I think back to um, my first, my very first museum experience was going to the Smithsonian. Okay. And, and sort of like... Um, you know, seeing a larger sort of reflection of our society, but not seeing myself within that. And mm -hmm. I think that's been a consistent um, theme for, unless you're going to a, a Native American host museum, you're not going to see a Native American voice. Mm -hmm. And I think um, just that simple thing of like, you know, we have two little girls who, um, when they go there, they can point to their relatives. Sure. Right and represented there, right. um, and they see things that they see at home, mm -hmm. represented in this larger sort of um, reflection of our culture. It's not not just Native American culture, but us as a part of the larger society. Mm -hmm. I think that that component itself, um, I think it's huge. Mm -hmm. I think also the story of of us <clears throat> being represented and our voice it's it's one of resilience of intelligence, right? Because oftentimes I, I felt like going into those museums and you'd see these um, images of digs and it would depict Native people as maybe like like hunched over, dirty, um, hair messy, just hides on their back, right? It, it kind of fixated Native people in this time of not being intelligent or, you know, of this was what it was. Um, and it didn't show a timeline of Native people through colonization. Like, colonization is a story of adaptation for Native people. But we rarely talk about it in that framework, right? We see Native people as teepees or as wigwams, and then and maybe, if you're lucky, now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but and so that instead of that story of what were some of our choices, basket making is a story of resilience for Native people, mm -hmm. is a story of adaptation, is how do we maintain culture through, with income, and, and it's this balance of of, um, of multiple things, and I think telling that story is important. So it, it puts us in a limelight or in an image of of intelligent of people of a culture that evolves, a living culture that evolves, not like a static culture because that's not a living culture, sure. right? So I think those those things are the subculture sort of of, of being represented of our story, mm. right? Mm. So we're going to talk a little bit about the um, kind of signature event that you're hoping to uh, talk about, um, the, the, the um, um, Indian basket, or the Indian, um, um, what am I thinking of? Abbey Museum. Abbey Museum. Abbey Museum. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. But I want to um, talk a little bit about that history because um, 
Native Americans have, have used Bar Harbor as a place um, before settlement and then after settlement, and baskets and, and crafts were part of that. Uh, who can tell me a little bit of that story and, 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 and what was it like um, in those early days, and, and why is it going to be different <laughs> next weekend? <laughs> I can say a little bit. Just, um, you know, it's the well-known story of the Rusticator era, on Mount Desert Island, 1840s, 1920s. You have um, summer folks coming from the big cities, enjoying the wilderness, tromping about, rusticating as you as, as they were. But what I think a lot of folks don't realize is that indigenous people were there, Wabanaki people were there, and they were traveling down. And, and they were a presence that was welcomed, um, was part of the experience for this um, city wilderness transition. Um, the the Bar Harbor Pier had um, Native people quite present. Through the years, unfortunately, the town kept moving Native people further and further away from the heart of it. Um, quite frankly, in lockstep with the Civil War and then later the um, Jim Crow era, you start to see these parallels of how um, people of color in general are treated, um, even in the North. So um, there's some sadness in that change but the identity of bar harbor as a destination is in lockstep with indigenous um, interests opportunities this creative economy um, and a lot of folks will say that some cultural forms were able to persist and thrive because that there was a demand mm-hmm. um, and that there was enough of economy to make sure they were continued to be made mm-hmm. now that doesn't say anything about the greater world of, of indigenous um, arts and culture. But in this instance, there was a little bit of an exchange that made a huge difference. And so for us to have a market like this, for us to have co-produced the festival for many years, the new market is, is the growth of that. It's, it's, it's technically been an uninterrupted um, cultural economy on NDI, even though the um, presence at the pier when the encampments went away, there were still Wabanaki people coming to the island seasonally to engage um, in all kinds of economies and people living there year-round still today. Um, so that never really shifted. I think it just became less visible, maybe. Um, and so to make it visible, in my argument, and I think others agree, is a decolonizing act. Um, to make it visible and clear that this has always been a Wabanaki place. And, oh, by the way, when you come, you can take some of it home with you Mm. um, in the form of fine arts um, and the best of the best of assembled to produce that for you. Mm. So first there was the festival. Describe that. Oh, yes. And then describe um, the upcoming uh, Abbey Museum Indian Market. So the Abbey was involved in the early days with the Native American Festival and Basket Makers Market. And then um, as the main Indian Basket Makers Alliance came along several, several years ago. They partnered and they really grew it and it moved to the grounds of College of the Atlantic for many years. Um, And then just last year, we moved it back to the Abbey because of our dedication to um, Wabanaki art forms, really trying to build an identity for Wabanaki artists in Bar Harbor. It's really important to to centralize and um, build from that. So the market itself that happens in May now every year is on the Village Green. And then the festival happens in our backyard, which most people don't realize. The Abbey has a big old backyard. Um, So we're using it so that it's very clear that you know where to connect with Mm -hmm. Wabanaki art Mm -hmm. and Wabanaki people. Um, in downtown Bar Harbor, and it's Mm -hmm. at the Abbey. So the festival um, has also been specifically about um, Wabanaki basket makers being involved with guests coming. The market is different. Um, The Indian market is a juried show where 
um, indigenous artists from all over North America apply to be in and are, go through a juried process. Um, and then um, once in, they can sell um, within certain um, boundaries, right? So there's the particular art forms that they might um, submit and they need to stick to that. They can't, for example, show up with a variety of different things. Okay. It's just like, um, it's a very particular phenomenon in the in the Indian market world. You know, there's many shows that we've been modeling after the herd market in Phoenix, um, the show in Santa Fe that happens every year. Um, there's a show in LA at the Autry Museum. Um, as well as the Idol Jorg in Indianapolis, they all kind of work on this formula of um, competition and jury um, and really heightening the value through um, attracting collectors um, and creating a competitive marketing marketplace. Um, that was lacking in Bar Harbor. It was lacking in the Northeast. Um, we're the fastest growing market as a result of making this commitment in Bar Harbor. And I would argue it's because Bar Harbor had this ripe place for it, right? Mm -hmm. It already had this great history for Wabanaki Arts to thrive. It just needed investment um, from someone like the Abbey to make the space. Mm. Let's um, invite our listeners to participate in the rest of our conversation. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. As we talk about the road to decolonization and the role of the Abbey Museum with our guests, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, who is president and CEO of the Abbey Museum, uh, Suzanne Greenlaw, member of the Abbey Native Advisory Council and uh, a fledgling basket maker, I think she says. And then uh, uh, Gabriel Frey is, is an Abbey board member and a Passamaquoddy basket maker. Uh, Gabe, perhaps um, you could pick up the thread in terms of what it was like to participate last year in the... Um, the, the uh, uh, I'm missing the name. <laughs> the, the Abbey, Indian, the Abbey, Abbey Museum. Indian market, <laughs> Indian market. Last year at this time. It was uh, – I, I approached it with, um, with skepticism, honestly, <laughs> because it was the first of its kind. It's, um, it was really like, I don't know. I'm going to do it because I support the Abbey, but we'll see. <laughs> and it, it was – it went off like gangbusters. We had um, – I spent the last year catching up on orders from that show. Um, so it's been, yeah, in in my mind, it was a, a resounding success. And then also, you know, the periphery effect of what it had on the um, Bar Harbor itself um, for that time of year. Um, yeah, I've, I've been encouraging as many artists mm. uh, that I know to participate because it's, yeah. It's, it's from it was, skeptic to believer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Suzanne, do I understand that you're going to participate for the first time this I year? I am, yeah. for the first time, yes. I'm, I'm uh, weaving like with the wind. <laughs> we don't have, we don't have uh, <laughs> photographs, although I think we, we tried to um, show one of uh, Gabe's baskets and the, from the, the Abbey's uh, photograph. W would you describe, how could you describe your baskets? And Gabe, I'll ask you to do the same. Or maybe you should describe the other person's baskets. Would that be a good idea? <laughs> well, I think Suzanne should describe some of her jewelry. She's also oh. going to have jewelry at the table. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So jewelry and baskets. Thank you for, for helping expand <laughs> the you, conversation. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, so um, over this past year, I've been working a little bit with jewelry as well. Gabe has, um, uh, him and another artist worked together to create uh, a different kind of basket, and she's a jewelry maker. And so part of their collaboration, she taught us jewelry making as well. So it's been a, a slow process, but uh, it's with precious metal clay, 
and you can make forms and molds and then push the clay into it and fire the clay and it'll be pure silver. Hmm. So it's been fun. I do some, I've learned to sweetgrass braids, like silver sweetgrass braids has been really pretty and, and I'm exploring other things. Um, basket making, I would say it's hard. It's, it's, it's challenging to create something different because we do have this history, this long history of basket making. And you can, it's really interesting. You can look at some of the books from, like, you know, from 1800 baskets or early 1900s, and you can find different forms that people aren't doing today. But figuring out how to recreate them is, is, is a challenge. Um, but because of basket making has been in our community, a lot of stuff has been done. So being a, a beginner basket maker or getting my stuff out in the, into the market I'm I'm thinking what can what can I contribute that's different <laughs> that people would be, see as different, and um, and that requires also a lot of time and work and redoing things. So hopefully a basket I'll have this will be like my fourth iteration of it that maybe is available actually to sell, mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> because it is a little bit of a it's a learning process as you go if you're trying to create new things that you can only see as a two D photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of like uh, reverse engineering sort of like uh, things from antiquity. It's it's in, it's incredible, and I think part of Suzanne's process has also been talking to elder basket makers and like showing them images. And like I think the number of people that you've spoken with, um, they've had a different idea of how it would be constructed. <laughs> so because they're like you know you're basically like looking at something from a hundred hundred and fifty years ago. Like, well, this is how I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a carpenter friend who said, you know, there's a thousand ways to accomplish that project. That's right. right. Because yeah. um, the, the mind works that way. There's a thousand ways to get right. it done. And yeah. Gabriel's been innovative in his baskets as well. He says, taken that pack basket form and has made it smaller and incorporated leather and, and metal smithing or silver smithing and to create more of a purse form. Um, so it's, it's this process of, of seeing what was there and and moving it forward slightly different mm-hmm. and um it's a way to evolve culture right mm-hmm. evolve basket mm-hmm. making and i'll say gabriel actually is a recipient this year of a large art award do you want to say what it is <laughs> <laughs> on the spot this, i know that yeah i i um i don't know how you say that the it's the t- uh, 2019 united states artists fellowship um mm. grant so it was a, a huge blessing for our family yeah Congratulations. That's great. I'll list our phone numbers just in case listeners want to participate. Um, 1-866-625-9378. So um, around the um, Abbey Museum Indian Market on May 17th through 19th in Bar Harbor, um, what else is happening besides the market it, itself? Oh, we have so many things planned. <laughs> it kicks off Friday, May 17th with our opening party. We also have all kinds of events happening at the Abbey that day, um, from programmatic things to um, um, visit- visitation opportunities. But the big thing is the preview party, which starts at 5. Um, we're introducing this year a level of competition. So during that party, there'll be um, opportunity for guests to vote for... Um, um, their choice, people's choice of artistry to win the prize. And there is a cash prize we're very excited about. Um, and then we have the artist choice. So artists will be able to pick as well. And that will happen on Friday night. There'll be music and um, food and a chance to connect with artists, which last year we hoped it would be a huge success. And it was. It was mm. so much fun. So that's Friday night kickoff. Then the event starts, um, of course, the next day with the market, but also on Friday night, the Indigenous Film Festival starts. We partner with Real Pizza Cinerama in Bar Harbor, and that runs for um, multiple nights through um, 
actually Monday, May 20th, they'll run films each night um, that are, uh, we try to prioritize indigenous made film, but there's also topics that have been um, uh, well connected to tribal communities, not always all indigenous made, but are in the lineup as well. Um, the market happens, as I alluded to, on Saturday and Sunday, but during the market um, experience, you also have performances all day long by um, storytellers and musicians and singers. Um, it's a very vibrant place as a result. Um, and then Saturday night, we have moved the fashion show from, last year we did it on the Village Green during the day. Now it's an evening event at the Criterion um, with the VIP experience if you pay a little more um, for the ticket price. Um, but we have five fashion designers this year um, and we are absolutely jazzed about this. Um, we have models lining up to walk the runway um, we have, I think, one of the really, everybody's amazing, but I just want to make a special <laughs> shout out to Ingrid Brooks, who is a Micmac um, fashion designer who was featured during Paris Fashion Week. Um, she's going to be here. And then all of those fashion designers are going to have booths, too, with ready-to-wear um, um, items. Um, but hopefully, if we are encouraging for um, the haute couture to show up on the runway. So it's going to be an exciting <laughs> night. Um, and then um, we encourage people to go on to our website abbeymuseum.org you'll see on the top where it says markets um, and you can learn about these but there are tickets for some of these events but the marketplace itself is free like all the performances very very family friendly um, days that we've constructed for you but if you want to come to the party Friday night there is a ticket for that um, um, but there's a great value with it and then if you want to go to the fashion show there's a general admission ticket and there's the VIP experience and we also are offering, offering bundling for those two events so I cannot encourage going to the <laughs> Abbey Museum website enough um, we last year saw about 5,000 people for this event mm. I was going to be happy with uh, I don't know 2,000, 3,000 5,000. We are estimating closer to 7,000 this year. Hotel rooms are filling up. They started filling up in early this year. Uh, we know that we pumped about a quarter million of the local economy last year, and this year it's going to be even more. Um, it is a big deal in Bar Harbor next weekend, and we're ready. Mm. Uh, Gabe, what, what do you recall from uh, meeting with other uh, Native American artists uh, last year's um, uh, market? What, what did you gain from that? What did you learn from that? Anything? Um, <clears throat> well, I, th I think one of the things, like, so the, the previous shows that we've had in Bar Harbor have been, um, you know, the, the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance. And this is primarily just Wabanaki artists. One of the amazing things about hosting a show that is a national art show, it really opens up local artists to other Native American artists from around the country that are also operating at the top of their game. Mm. And it's inspiring. It's inspiring to see people doing a craft and actually making that their their life. Um, and so I think that's that's one of the things that, like, you know, especially for the youth in our community, mm. to see that as a viable option, right? Mm. I mean, like, mm. it sort of, it, it opens up a lot of sort of doors for people. Mm. So I think that's, yeah, mm. that's a huge one. What do you remember from, from last year? Anything that you gained from, from that process or learned? Well, last year I was just a visitor. Right. Um, I think I was just inspired by all the different art, mm. all the the options that are the, the art that people did around the world around the country um 
loves a lot of jewelry, fashion. I mean, I think I feel like native fashion is really exploding right now. Hmm. It has a, and that was amazing to see and and to witness and the excitement around around native fashion is really cool. Because I mean, we wear clothes every day, right? Like, why not support native people? Hmm. Why, hmm. like, right? What's that native, native inspired over? Um, Anyways, this idea of like you can go to Urban Outfitters and buy a Navajo shirt that they are stealing that that artwork and they're stealing native artwork and native names, right? But the idea of actually supporting native people and creating the art, not just people who are stealing that that hmm. um, the art. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense because we, those of us who have been thinking about it, say, well, what is cultural appropriation, and what is you know supporting native um, artists? Yeah, right. um, th- there's a difference there. There's yeah. a difference there. It's uh, native inspired over inspired native, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what the, that hashtag is. Right? Good. And you you said, uh, Gabe, that um, it was so helpful to see that you could you could make a life with your art yeah. um, living as well as as income yeah yeah well and it's the same thing like so the, my brother jeremy frey had been pushing me to do um santa fe indian market for years and the first time i went out there that's the experience that i had mm. was seeing like native artists just doing doing their craft and expressing their their unique voice through their artwork mm. and bringing that feeling back home to our homeland mm. it, it's incredible and it's incredible to see like i i was i was like sort of on the periphery of the of the process so watching that um i seeing the full scope of these national artists here um i think was was really inspiring mm. so yeah mm. i think um bringing that feeling um yeah, it's incredible. And I feel like you get inspired by collaboration. Gabe and a fashion designer, Neo Perkins, is collaborating for this show as well. On um, she's she sent images, and I've seen them obviously. But these beautiful pack basket straps that are Ashley's with all of these um, native flowers on them. Uh, it's beautiful. Her beadwork is amazing, and and to see a collaboration between two different artists is is really cool. And where is she based? Uh, Haudenosaunee. So I think northern New York. Uh-huh. She's from. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So is this one of the, the the products of decolonization to have something as exciting as this this market? What is, is this? Is it, so you could go back to tell someone I'm not too sure about the Abbey, but you could tell <laughs> bring them to this and say this is what's happening. Yeah. 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 As a result, as yeah. a result of that, yeah. and it, and that you know, I mean, it does come from again the sort of like longer dialogue that we've been having like what would be what would be helpful for the community and then the community saying more access to market more yeah. you know of this and then so then bringing that back to the museum and saying well how what does that look like in this format and then coming back again it's sort of this this it's a conversation rather than um now, this is what we've set up for you, sure. and so sure. here, here's your table, and <laughs> right. it's it's yeah. it's really uh, it's the result of years long conversation with the community and mm. a commitment to community, to yeah. local community as yeah. well, right? A commitment mm. to raise the raise opportunity, yeah, right. To actually, have have this uh, manifest and to really, you know, put your money where your mouth is, mm-hmm. really. It's- it's that really, yeah, um, yeah. And one of the things that Gabe was part of very early on was a creative summit. We gathered several Wabanaki artists at the Abbey and said exactly that: What is it you need 
Um, what do we need to do? And we had a big list. We still have a good list that we're working <laughs> through. But the catalyst is this market, you know, making that clear footprint, um, returning that clear understanding of Wabanaki art forms thrive on MDI, and mm. they always have. Mm. Mm. Um, now, that's not going to be maybe the, the product that other museums choose, right. but it is what we received and learned from and made good on. Right kind of a lightning round um, as we r- wind up the hour, which has gone too fast. Um, but what, what, what would be your hopes um, for, the, for the next step in the process or the next steps in the process of decolonization? Any thoughts about what you might aspire to, um, you know, given um, the, the, the work that you've done, the hard work that you've done so far? Hmm. Lightning round. I guess my <laughs> hopes would be that engagement with community and that... Um, provide a platform and and to engage youth and how to do this type of work. Mm. So now we get more Native people doing, initiating this work for their own communities or for their own museums or, you know, now we bring that sort of power to the community. Mm. Mm. Thanks. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, sort of while we've reached people that are already um, engaged and looking outward, there's still a lot of community members that maybe are uh, have much more resistance of uh, of reaching out or or having that trust extended. I think that there's sort of that uh, repairing the relationship. I think. Mm. And you've got two children. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you imagine them um, in twenty years? Um, in kind of the 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 results of decolonization. Any thoughts there? <laughs> I'd say I'm going to be a lawyer. Alamoset. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think one thing is. Um, is uh, not having their name be weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we go to uh, grocery stores and people are like, what's your name again? Because it's native names. Very quickly, Cinnamon, your um, You know, exactly what Gabe was saying is that we do this work, but we also have to recognize the harm of the past and making sure we re-look at that and make repair, reparations. Mm. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune in for our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle from University of Maine Sea Grant on the fourth Friday morning of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Karnak on a Balnain House Island music recording. Thanks again so much to our guests in the studios, uh, studio this morning, Cinnamon Katman-Legutko, President and CEO of the Abbey Museum, Suzanne Greenlaw, a member of the Abbey Native Advisory Council from the Maliseet Tribe, Gabriel Frey, uh, Abbey board member and a Passamaquoddy board uh, basket maker. Good luck to you next weekend at the... At the uh, um, Abbey Museum Indian Market, May 17th through 19th on the Village Green in Bar Harbor. I didn't write that down. Um, And thanks to underwriters, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from